This podcast is about earthquakes and a building collapse. Some of it might be hard to listen to, so please take care. We had an appointment at the CTV building for our son Jet who was suffering from earthquake anxiety. I remember putting my hand on the door handle as I was leaving home and thought, is it too late to cancel? Toby had an appointment at 10 to 1. They said that he needed a doctor to get a medical certificate. I parked up the car, which was four car parks away from the entry to the CTV building. I went up with him to the fourth floor. At the start of the day, I was um, I was working for temp agencies, and I found out that I was going to be working at the St Paul Church, opposite the CTV building. And I gave him a hug and I kissed him and said I love him, and told him that I'll wait downstairs for him in the car with his sister. My uh, mum, Marion Hill, was she had worked at the clinic for I believe a couple of years. The whole morning I was like, well, I'll go have lunch with mum. And I was going to have lunch at like 12.31. I'll just work a little bit later and I'll go see mum at like one or two. I started to hear this big grumbling noise, you know, like rumbling. It's like that, the, the belly of the beast starting to sort of roar. I remember the shaking grabbing Jet in my arm and grabbing the front of Dita's stroller. And then as the wave was going, you could see the building starting to crumble from Casual Street end. And as I was running towards the CTV building, I could see it swaying, and then all of a sudden I saw it dislodge, like something had just like boosted it up. Looking ahead of me and seeing the floor separate from the walls, and I just remember thinking it's a dream, realised it wasn't a dream, and just thought we're all gonna die. And so it pushed it up, and then when it pushed it up, it stopped swaying, and it just started to come completely down like a pancake, stack after stack. And then it was like a suction, we were like being vacuumed down. was just so dusty and thick and when we turned around to face the CTV building we saw the top of it at our level and then I went no. Call the CHLS. We've got uh, major damage throughout the entire city. Clouds of dust. Um, we've got buildings that have collapsed. On February the 22nd, 2011, a massive earthquake struck Christchurch in New Zealand. The shaking was short and sharp, only about 15 seconds, but magnitude 6.3 and almost directly under the city. All told, 
the earthquake claimed the lives of 185 people. 115 of them were in one building, the CTV building. My name is Kendall Lamont. I was in the CTV building with my two children when it collapsed. My name is Josh Hilbers and I saw the CTV building collapse with my mum inside it. My name is Tania Emery and I said, my son's in that building. I ain't going nowhere. You take care of yourself. I'm Michael Wright. And I'm Margaret Gordon. On February 22, 2011, a devastating earthquake shook the city of Christchurch, killing 185 people. Two-thirds of those people were in one building, a building that should never have been built. From stuff, this is collapse. As soon as I went into that building, I thought to myself, OK, I'm going to die. We have a building on fire with persons trapped. That night was the longest, coldest, most frightening night I've ever had in my entire life. If I don't get fire service here soon, they're going to die from the fire. Where were you at uh, 12.51 on February 22, 2011? I was actually at a conference in Wellington, a civil defence or a response agency conference, just suggesting that the whole sequence wasn't finished yet. This Um, is Kelvin Berryman. Until recently, he was a principal scientist at GNS Science, a public research institute that studies, among other things, earthquakes. On February the 22nd, 2011, Berryman was giving a talk about aftershocks in Canterbury. The region had had a massive quake in September the year before and, looking back, had got off pretty lightly. It caused a lot of damage, but it struck in the middle of the night when most people were asleep. No one died. Berryman was warning his audience, mostly emergency response people, that even six months on, the shaking might not be over. The key note was, beware, we may not be done yet. We may not be finished. Don't know, but be prepared. It's a voice that people don't want to hear. It's, (laughs) It's a bit of a difficult sell. That sounds crazy to hear now, but 10 years ago, selling Kiwis on the threat of earthquakes could be hard work. Let's say that this is a typical New Zealand family. And this is a typical New Zealand earthquake. For a country that liked to call itself the Shaky Isles, we were remarkably blasé about them. We knew we had the Alpine Fault running down the country and that was going to go off one day. If we owned a house, we all paid money into something called the Earthquake Commission, or EQC, without really knowing what it did or how it worked. And because these people have fire insurance, they also have earthquake insurance. EQC, earthquake insurance. But big, disastrous earthquakes where people died? That was something that happened in history books in far-flung places. So the September quake was a big surprise. Not least because it hit near Christchurch, a long way from the Alpine Fault. Even after that, Cantabrians were interested in the science, but the idea that another big one might be just around the corner, not so much. On February the 22nd, 2011, just after Kelvin Berryman had finished giving his speech, everything changed. That conference full of emergency response people was over. And of course their pages and phones went off, went crazy, and well, basically the whole audience uh, left town, went to the airport pretty quickly on an Air Force plane to Christchurch that same afternoon. By the time Berryman was in the air, he already knew the basics. 
The quake was magnitude 6.3, not as big as September, but pretty much everything else about this one was worse. It was shallower, almost right under the city, and it was in the middle of the day. Because the September earthquake had been in the middle of the night where everybody was at home, but knowing that it was nearly one o'clock in the afternoon, lots of people out, uh, business day, a lot of people downtown. My comments to the civil defence people were, this is really bad. People will have died here. Later, Berryman and his colleagues found out more. Christchurch is actually the centre of earthquake research in New Zealand, and sensors placed all around the city made this one of the best recorded quakes in history. The quake was short, only about five seconds, but the shaking lasted a lot longer. And technically, it was an aftershock linked to the September earthquake. This was a bit of a surprise to Cantabrians, who kind of thought aftershocks were things that got weaker and less frequent. Remember the thrust of Berryman's speech that day? Beware, we may not be done yet. There was a whole latticework of tiny fault lines crisscrossing the Canterbury Plains that had been activated by the September quake. An aftershock could come from any of them. And just a note for clarity, and with apologies to seismologists everywhere, we're going to call the February 22nd event an earthquake. I know it's an aftershock, but earthquake is simpler. So, the February 22nd earthquake came from a small fault under the Port Hills, which skirt around the southern edge of Christchurch. This fault was only about 8 or 10 kilometres long, but, as Berryman puts it, the quake was... Very, very energetic. Which means... It produced a lot of energy. Big quake produces a lot of energy. I know that sounds like what all earthquakes do, but here the details are important. The magnitude 6.3, later revised down to 6.2, was big, but not that big. September was 7.1. The key in February was the quake started under the Port Hills, very close to the city, and made of hard volcanic rock. This meant the shaking came in fast, short waves before projecting out to Christchurch itself, a city built on soft sediment and sitting in a natural swampy basin. So the energy of an earthquake is translated through waves. And when you go from strong rock to um, softer, you increase the amplitude and slow it all down. And of course that's the Christchurch story. What Berryman's saying is that when the earthquake moved from the hard rock under the hills to the soft sediment under the city, that light shortwave shaking became long, heavy and devastating. So a lot of very fast but quite small movements became bigger, slower, destructive movements. Or imagine taking the energy of being slapped in the face 50 times and transferring it into a few big knockout punches. So all this energy was built up under the hills, slap, 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 and then unleashed on Christchurch. Punch, punch, punch. And there was one more thing. Most New Zealand buildings built to modern standards are designed to withstand the ground shaking of a major earthquake. In the 1980s and 90s, our building codes got a lot stricter This didn't mean that buildings were expected to come through big quakes unscathed, just that they would stay standing and save the lives of the people inside. By 2011, new buildings had to withstand the type of quake so big that you'd only get one on average every 500 years. 
this one. It was well above that. It was above in some places a two and a half thousand year level of shaking, which is well beyond the design criteria. As a five second rupture on a tiny fault reverberated around Christchurch, that one in two and a half thousand year shaking was brought to bear. The city's eastern suburbs sank into sand and water as the solid ground shook so hard that it liquefied. Um, could the firecoms organise to shut all the gas in the central city down if it's not already done? And be advised there is no water available in the central city. Roads, water mains, sewer lines crumpled. Just about every commercial building in the city was evacuated. Tom's POS 4, the Palms is evacuated. You've got many people there with injuries. I'll make my way into the city. Uh, look, mate, you just have to use your lights and so on and hope. I mean, I've had a hell of a job getting around myself, to be honest. There's no clear shore. Some of the most vulnerable buildings in the CBD were two or three storeys pre-war with unreinforced concrete facades. When the quake hit, those facades collapsed into the street. Shoppers and workers on their lunch break were crushed to death. One facade fell on a bus and killed eight people inside. We have a red bus that's been crushed with multiple injuries, multiple deaths. We have multiple injuries, multiple people trapped. We've got a patient in here who's trapped. He's going to go status one. Is that really a collapse before many buildings down? What none of those people you just heard realised then was that in a city of countless tragedies, one eclipsed them all. It was the only building in Christchurch that completely collapsed. Yes, in parts of the city, the shaking was bad enough to be considered a one in two and a half thousand year event. And yes, this was well above the one in 500 year strength most new buildings were built to. And yet, in all of this, only one building pancaked from six storeys to two in a matter of seconds. The CTV building. This podcast is about that building. About one tragedy in a city full of them. About how it went up, it shouldn't have got through council. How it came down. And sort of pancaked down, which in turn pancaked the rest of the floors below. The people who were saved. When she went from, I'm going to die, to a realisation, I'm going to live. And the 115 who weren't. This is a grown man in tears, because they couldn't rescue these people. But we're also going to tell you another story one that came to dominate the aftermath of the tragedy and really the entire legacy of the CTV building. Was the collapse fate or someone's fault? Say you walk into a building and an earthquake hits and that building collapses and you die. You had no idea that any of that was about to happen, so you could say it was fate. But what if someone else could have stopped that from happening? Maybe made it so you weren't allowed to go into that building that day or that the building wasn't there when the earthquake hit because it had been torn down, or never built in the first place. If someone else could have done one of those things and didn't do them, is your death that person's fault? Of course, you're listening to me now, so it's all hypothetical. 
But for those 115 people who were in the CTV building, at 12.51pm on February the 22nd, 2011, it wasn't. I need fire to address Castro Street ASAP. We have a building on fire with persons trapped and we're trying to get out. And their story didn't end that day. Lawyers, politicians, engineers, judges, even the grieving families themselves would argue for years. Was it fate or someone's fault? Was the CTV building destined to fall down or should someone have done something about it? Ten years on, that fight is still going, which prompts the same question so many people were asking that day back in 2011. Why? 12.51, obviously, the earthquake hit. We were sitting inside a shipping container at the time. This is Godfrey Nosa. On the day of the earthquake, he was working as a plasterer, and the shipping container he's talking about was at a building site on the corner of Cashel and Madras Streets in central Christchurch. As fate had it, the site was a quake-damaged church on the corner diagonally opposite the CTV building. Because it was a colourful building, we stared at it for a, a good few months when we were there. So, you know, when we would sit in the scaffold, we'd go on about, you know, what a shit design it was. The boys were just mocking it and stuff, like the colours. So the building wasn't the prettiest. A squat concrete block. Grey, except for a few garish coloured panels on the exterior. CTV stood for Canterbury Television, the local TV station. They were the main tenant, and everyone in Christchurch knew it by that name. But it was actually home to several other businesses. Their signage was plastered all over the walls as well. That's all the colours Godfrey and the boys were mocking. Anyway, back to February 22nd. He and his colleagues were in the shipping container. Luckily we were in there because everything landed on top of the container and went onto the road. And then it was just dust. Like, you couldn't see anything because it just hit. As the dust settled, Godfrey and his workmates saw what was left of the CTV building. So it was all concrete, um, plasterboards, timber, metal framing... Um, pink bats. As any New Zealander can tell you, pink bats are the pink-coloured insulation material we use in pretty much all construction. We've seen everyone sort of running around hysterically and trying to account for everybody that was in the building. You know, I, I looked over at um, a workmate of mine, Evan, and I said to him, um, there'll be some people over there that will need some help. Like, are you keen to go and help? Godfrey and Evan clambered onto the rubble over entire concrete floors and beams that used to hold them up. Sheets of corrugated iron, and yep, pile after pile of pink bats. Once they got to the top, the only part of the building that wasn't under their feet was the elevator shaft. It stood there, six storeys high, skinny and denuded. Air conditioning ducts, doors and electrical wires were dangling from it and shaking with every aftershock. And the aftershocks were coming in like every minute, you know, and just seeing the um, elevator shaft sway at every aftershock. I said to Evan, we've got to get out of here soon before that comes down. Before we hear what happened next, we should mention that Godfrey considers Evan the real hero that day. Evan, his full name's Evan McClellan, didn't want to talk for this podcast. He said he wanted to leave it all in the past. For what it's worth, though, Godfrey says Evan was the first person onto the rubble after the quake and the first person to start looking for survivors. As we were up there, we noticed that there were people trying to get out from the rubble. So we pulled out at least eight or nine people straight away. That was the easy part. There were a whole lot more people trapped deeper. Godfrey never knew because they could hear them calling for help. This made Godfrey nervous. 
crawling into holes, actually going into the rubble to look for people was a different game. But Evan wouldn't give up. And Aaron's like, no, wait, just one more. Just one more. I can still hear people. And he crawled in, so I was just like, okay, well, I'm going in too. So as soon as I went into that building, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to die. So when we actually crawled in, it was actually we crawled into an office. It was an actual room. And I was just like, what the hell? You could see, like, chairs and desks and stuff. The further in they went, the more cramped it got and the less they could do. Godfrey could see it wasn't going to work. He reached out to Evan. I just pulled his leg and said, no, we're not going in, man. Godfrey and Evan couldn't go in any further, but they knew there were people close to them. In the cramped space, Godfrey could hardly see anything. But then he heard a woman's voice. And then Evan saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I could hear footsteps. I just remember yelling out, help, help. That's Kendall Lamont. You heard from her at the start. She was on the top floor of the CTV building when the quake hit with her son Jet and daughter Dita. I'm here, I've got two kids, please help us. I can't even remember exactly what was on us, but it got pulled away and I just seen Evan's face. And I handed out the kids to him and he left to carry them down the pile. Actually, a stroller came out first. Evan threw it out behind him. Then he handed Godfrey a baby, Dita. Then he grabbed Jet in his arms. And um, he came back for me and... I remember pulling myself out and standing up and just seeing thousands of people walking down the streets, leaving. And that's when I said, how bad is it? How many are dead? And he goes, you're okay, carry on, carry on, keep going. And I was like, I can't walk. And he went, oh, for fuck's sake, and picked me up and carried me on to the next lot of people. Kendall had a triple fractured pelvis, but Jet and Dita were miraculously unscathed. Kendall was knocked out when the building collapsed. When she came to, Jet told her he'd been looking after his little sister while Mum was asleep. Kendall hasn't seen Godfrey since that day, but she did eventually track down Evan. When I found him, he told me how he had had a dream. He had a dream about saving a woman and two children off a mountain in a cave. When the earthquake struck, he was across the road working on the old church. Him and Godfrey came straight over, went round the back of the building and climbed up, which he said was like a mountain, and found us in a cubby hole, which was like a cave. So he literally followed his vision and his dream and rescued us. Some four minutes, four or five minutes of perishing from the fire. The fire. We haven't talked much about the fire yet but it was about to play a major part in this story. By all accounts, smoke was seen emerging from the rubble of the CTV building within a few minutes of the earthquake. How it started is debated to this day, but most people who were there agreed the location was somewhere at the northern end, near the elevator shaft. At first, it was just a nuisance, but it slowly got worse and worse. There were people that were still stuck inside that, you know, we could hear, but because the fire was getting worse, 
it was beginning to be hard to to stand on the building. It just got too hot. Like the smoke was just started, you know, hitting us pretty hard. Godfrey says it was the main thing that stopped him and Evan and the other civilian rescuers from saving more people. Too much heat, too much smoke. You can hear faint screaming um, underneath. It's like uh, somebody sort of like have their hand over their mouth and they're trying to trying to scream. And Evan's like, I can hear them. Like we can get under there. And I said, No, we can't. And then at that stage, the, the smoke was just too much. And I said, Like you know, and we were both crying. The CTV rescue was just getting started. The first fire truck arrived at the site about 40 minutes after the quake. That's the one you just heard calling for water tankers. Water was a big problem. Pipes were broken across the city, so fire hydrants were out, and the trucks themselves didn't carry much water. So the call went out for tankers, and eventually a helicopter with a monsoon bucket to get to CTV. What the firefighters and the other rescuers were worried about was the people trapped deep in the rubble. Godfrey, Evan and the others at the vanguard had mostly rescued people who'd been on the top floor of the building, level six, in the offices of a counselling service. That's where Kendall and Jet and Dieter were. Of the 19 people on the top floor that day, only one died, Administrator Nina Bishop. Everyone else was rescued. The bigger battle was on the floors below. Level five, a medical practice called the clinic, full of patients, doctors and other staff. Level four, the King's Education English Language School, with dozens of students, mostly from Japan, China and the Philippines, on their second day of classes. Level three was empty. Another language school used to be there, but had moved out of the building a couple of months earlier. And levels one and two, Canterbury Television itself, CTV. At the clinic on the fifth floor, one of those people trapped was receptionist Marion Hilbers. You heard her son Josh at the start. As it happened, Josh was working on the same site as Godfrey and Evan that day, St Paul's Church. He couldn't get his drill to go, so he worked through his lunch break instead of catching up with his mum. She worked about off as a single mother. You know, my my mum and dad split up when I was about 10. She devoted to make sure that we got into the right schools. Um, She worked two jobs, worked very late at night, always cooked the dinner at... Nine or ten, you know, it always... You know, Marion didn't like working in the CTV building. It shook when a bus or a truck drove past, made her uneasy. She'd applied for another job working at a different medical centre out in the suburbs. On the day of the quake, she was waiting to hear back. At 12.51pm, she'd just started her lunch break, without Josh. He was across the street, watching the building collapse. Are you thinking immediately then? No, I was in shock. Literally in shock. When I ran to the building, I knew my mum was in that building. I knew she went to work. After a minute or so, I decided to start climbing the rubble. And I started climbing, and I may have got about two or three metres up the rubble, and something came over me. I don't know if it was me or if it was something 
higher power, a spirit or something like that, that told me to, to get down, to stop climbing. Someone mentioned that there were survivors at Latimer Park, and so I, um, I uh, decided to go look and if I could find my mum. And um, mum wasn't there. Latimer Square is a small park lined with trees, about half a block from the CTV building. After the quake, emergency services used it as a base and people from all over the CBD congregated there. In a daze, Josh kept wandering around and around it, ringing his mum's phone over and over again. Each time, it went to voicemail. Josh left town late in the afternoon, just early enough for him to miss his uncle, Paul Berry, who was on his way into town. Paul was Marion's brother. He was a security guard and the CTV building was on his beat. His uniform and patrol car were enough to blag his way through the cordon police and the army had set up around the central city. There's army cordon and the army personnel were there. And I was in this is Paul. And I said, hey, look, um, the building just down the road there. I need to go and check it. I'll go straight there and come back. Paul wasn't going straight there and coming back. He just didn't know it yet. At this point, maybe 6pm, he wasn't worried about Marion. He didn't even know she worked in the CTV building. The clinic had only moved there a couple of months earlier. Paul went to Marion's old offices first, saw a sign on the door saying they'd moved, and so headed over to CTV. But I come down Madras Street, and I went into shock because the left half of my brain went, the whole skyline's gone. I was just sat there in shock, thinking, you're kidding me, that's, that's one of my sights. It's actually gone? Anyone thinking, oh, I hope she's not in there, because that's not good. Paul Berry had been in the CTV building countless times, but now he couldn't get near it. The site was swarming with police, firefighters, digger drivers, medics, engineers, and specially trained firefighters known as Urban Search and Rescue. More on them later. There was nothing he could do. But wait. It's, you go into slow motion because you're in such a state that you, you have to slow down so you can process it. But does, does an hour feel like an hour? No. <laughs> does a minute feel like a minute? No. That night was the longest, coldest, most frightening night I've ever had in my entire life. Paul stood across the road in front of a Holden car dealership and watched the rescue. He met a guy, European accent, who said his wife was in the building too. Paul and this guy sat in the back of an ambulance, had a can of Coke, and talked. So we sat and talked for about half an hour. But on all that time, you were running at 100 miles an hour. You are living on hope. That's like overseas, they're going to start pulling people out. At some point that night, Paul gave an interview to a TV reporter. So just look at me, Paul. Yeah. So, Paul, what's the situation here? Uh, devastation. The building's collapsed. My sister's on the was on the fourth floor. We haven't heard from her. No contact. Nothing. So, it's a waiting game. What can you tell me about your sister? Lovely lady. Lovely lady. Loves her kids. Yeah. How many kids has she got? Two. Sam and Josh. And uh, I know they'll be at home now, worried, just as we're shaking now. Exactly. Another aftershock. Yeah. Uh, that'd be about a five. Yeah. Yep. yep. So, uh, that's probably the eighth tonight. Paul and the guy with the accent he shared a coke with were the only two people keeping vigil inside the cordon. 
just across the barrier, though, was Tanya Emery. You heard her at the start as well. Her son, Torpy, was in the building too. He was at the clinic where Marion worked, waiting to see a doctor. Tanya had been calling his phone constantly, but it just rang and rang and rang until nothing. Flat battery. Well, I spent most of the time around Latimer Square looking for him. Latimer Square was close to the CTV building, about 100 metres away. It's where Josh Hilbers ended up as well. And then the other time I was just watching the people that were coming out, being brought out and laid out, and then just hoping that the ones that they were bringing out wasn't my son. The bodies recovered from the site were brought down from the rubble and placed in a temporary mortuary. They were covered up, except for one part, their feet. Torpy had just bought new trainers a couple of days before, black and green, high-top Nikes. I was looking at their feet, their shoes. That's why I knew what Torpy was wearing, because it was the thing he showed me, he goes, look, mum, could be some new kicks. Yeah, so that's what I was looking for. Every body that was brought out, Tanya looked at the feet. Black and green Nikes, black and green Nikes. Hoping, in a way, that she would see them, but hoping even more that she wouldn't. Because I didn't want it to be my son. If I seen all the other footwear, which was a bit of a relief, but said for the others, because they lost theirs. So I know how they feel, but I was just hoping that none of them was going to be him. Toffee had been in the waiting room at the clinic when Tanya left him. This was on the fifth floor, on the east side. This was important because while the building pancaked, it didn't collapse neatly onto itself. It fell slightly to the east. This meant the west side of the site was exposed, kind of like the buildings and sides were showing. There were lots of little gaps and voids to get into, and not too many big, heavy, immovable pieces of rubble. The east side was a lot different. When the building fell to the east, all of the floor slabs and lots of the big concrete beams and columns that held them up fell hard on top of each other and sandwiched together. There weren't many ways to get into the rubble on this side and fewer pockets of space where people could survive. And this made for two very different rescues. Remember, within a couple of hours of the quake, countless police, firefighters, medics and other rescuers were on site. The first ones there divided CTV into two sectors, east and west. Those on the west side made a lot more progress than the ones on the east, and they rescued a lot more people. Early on, the person in charge of the firefighters on the east side was Station Officer Stephen Warner. Warner's problem was his men couldn't get into the rubble and the fire was getting worse. There were diggers on site that could delayer the building, basically just pick up some of those big bits of debris and move them out of the way. It was risky, but Warner came up with a plan. I got everybody off the site and lined them up along Madras Street on the other side of the road facing the CTV building. This is Stephen Warner reading a statement describing his plan to an inquest in 2012. I told the people that we were trying to pick the rubble off the top with diggers and we wanted them to be looking to the pile to see if you can see anyone. I said, if we uncover anyone, as soon as you see them, I want you to wave and I will tell the diggers to stop. I went and stood with my back to the CTV building so I could see the digger drivers and the people standing behind the diggers. So the diggers were digging, the watchers were watching, and Warner was watching the watchers. Like we said, it was a risky strategy. The digger drivers in particular were reluctant to do it at all. 
The rubble was kind of like pickup sticks, all woven together and no way of knowing what was connected to what. The drivers worried they'd move the wrong piece and bring the whole pile down on someone who was trapped. Warner took them aside. I just told them that it was Hobson's choice. We can't do nothing. I said that if there are people trapped in there and we don't get them out pretty soon, they're going to either be killed by the smoke inhalation or the heat of the fire. So they went to work. The fire was burning. They couldn't wait. The digger drivers started lifting the rubble piece by piece, as delicately as possible. Some of the people in Madras Street started waving their arms, so I told the diggers to stop, which they did. We rescued one woman who'd been trapped between two floors. I had to get someone to crawl in underneath because her foot was jammed around the back of a filing cabinet. The woman was Pip Lee, a receptionist at the clinic. Her foot was actually caught in her desk drawer and she was surrounded by stationery that had spilled everywhere. Her right hand was pinned between her desktop and the wall. People ran up and helped this woman out. About five to ten minutes to get her out because she was jammed. Pip was hurt, but luckily not too badly. She was treated for her injuries and she was able to talk to her rescuers. She had one crucial piece of information. The woman said that she's been talking to someone else in the rubble, just beneath and further in from her. One more person from the clinic, where Marion Hilbers and Torpy Emery were when the quake hit, was alive. At Latimer Square, Tanya Emery, Torpy's mum, was at the cordon, about 100 metres from the rubble. The cordon guards kept asking her to move back, but Tanya refused. And I asked them not to put me behind the tape. I didn't want to be there, I wanted to be in front of the tape so that... When my son came out, I was able to receive him. Paul Berry, Marion's brother, kept his post right opposite the rubble. Yep. How confident are you that she's still alive? Oh, we've got to stay positive. You know, he and Tanya Emery were both hoping for a miracle. One of them was about to get it. Wendy, look, this is the most amazing story. We have been keeping a vigil outside this building here that you can see it's just collapsed. Next time on Collapse. Think of everything that would normally be in an office and then squash all that under, a little bit bigger than under your bed. Because my head was uh, stuck. I thought my head would pull out. And she was holding my arm looking up at me saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Collapse is a stuff podcast written, produced and presented by Michael Wright and me, Margaret Gordon. Additional reporting, research and creative input by Mark Greenhill. Script editing by Adam Dudding. Music by Henry Nichol. Sound mix and design by Chris Sinclair. If you want to know more, head to stuff.co.nz slash collapse, where you'll find links to every episode as well as photos, graphics and feature articles. You'll also find links for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and so on. If you're listening on Apple, don't forget to give Collapse a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. This episode included audio from TVNZ, Fire and Emergency New Zealand and New Zealand Police. Thanks also to The Age and Nine. This podcast was made possible with help from New Zealand On Air.